Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. My name is Brandon Stiver, and I hope you're having a good summer. You know, summertime is upon us, and as I had shared previously, we're we're switching it up a little bit. You know, in the past, we've done these different recasts and, you know, getting out over 200 episodes of, you know, fantastic content coming from all over the world. And as we go through, we're kind of noticing some different thematic elements. And uh, so we're putting together a, another compilation uh, that we're sharing uh, just over this uh, 2022 summer. So we're grateful uh, for you uh, following along and listening just want to encourage you, if you haven't done so already, if you are on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to your podcast, if you can go and give us a review, give us a five star. If you want to give us a one star, you could do that or just skip it or just listen to another great podcast. Uh, but always appreciate your guys' feedback. Always appreciate your guys' rating. So thank you for those that do. We were recently able to, um, about a month ago, have our 200th episode where we we're able to record some messages from listeners and past guests, people that are following along with Think Orphan. And uh, those things continue to happen, you know, where people are reaching out and sharing, giving us feedback. I uh, just got an email today from one uh, young man who's been listening along and has interest in, you know, serving kids in the Philippines. And, you know, after our last uh, podcast episode, I got a message from our friend Joseph Luganda. Uh, down in Uganda who's doing good work with uh, SFAC and uh, just doing other uh, engaged with other organizations he's been a friend for a while and we're just getting good feedback you know one of the things that Joseph raised um, I don't know if you guys caught this you know as the last podcast which we called the care leader compilation you know we had our own staff here at one million home they were like did you mean to say care lever care leader you know, we have these different terms, and that was actually something that, that Joseph raised as well. You know, for us on that last episode, when we were listening to people like Sinet and Tomrat and Nabs and um, Grace, you know, what we were going for there and what other people have started to say as well is that those that have experienced care, those that have left care are actually in a unique position to lead. So that's why we kind of, um, you know, called it the care leader compilation as opposed to just the care lever compilation um but is it just semantics i don't know we love your guys's feedback you know a lot of people talk about are you a care experienced person are you a care lever are you a care leader whatever you call uh that population um i believe that they have a unique role and you know as i think about joseph's feedback and just again encourage you guys reach out um you can contact me at brandon at one million home.com. You can contact our uh, info at Think Orphan. But, um, you know, we love to hear back from you guys. And we're going to be talking about terms again today. Um, so, today, uh, this is our next compilation where we're looking at transitioning to family care. And, you know, similar to, you know, care lever versus care leader versus care experienced person, really there's different terms that kind of come into play here too when we talk about transitioning to family care. Sometimes we talk about care reform, right? We're reforming care. Sometimes we talk about deinstitutionalization. And we're going to have some different leaders, practitioners that are on the podcast today um, looking back at what does it mean to transition to family care? What does it mean to 
to get kids back into family? How do we take orphanages and turn them into something else, right? Or close them down and allow kids to safely reenter family life? Um, we're going to be looking at those things, and today we're going to be looking at the international level and then looking at a specific country, so kind of like international level, countrywide, and then organization-specific. So we're going to kind of keep narrowing down, uh, and there's no better uh, person that we could go and uh, listen to when it comes to transitioning, when it comes to care reform, deinstitutionalization, whatever you want to call it, uh, than Delia Pop. So Delia has been on the podcast before. She was formerly with Hope and Homes for Children. She now runs an organization called Tanya's Dream Fund, which is focused in Bulgaria. Um, and she is an international expert. You guys can go back and listen to episodes 51 and 52. But Delia is going to provide us with just a great overview. You know, why do kids belong in families? What is deinstitutionalization or care reform all about? And uh, if you have not listened to Delia's episode, it was a while ago, but it is just as relevant now as it was then. And uh, like I said, she's really a leading expert in this space. So uh, I'm excited to jump into this first one as we talk about transitioning to family care today. So without further ado, here is Delia Pop. Um, can you just discuss what deinstitutionalization is, why it's so important? Uh, that we understand it, and why it's important to move children out of orphanages. Perfect. Thank you so much, Phil. And I think, you know, we are all very brave individuals using this word, deinstitutionalization. Mm -hmm. Truly, it took me about 17 years to learn how to pronounce it quickly and never be surprised <laughs> when asked the question. Um, I think it's a, it's, it is a, a, an ugly word, as it's so difficult to pronounce, but it's always so important for us to try to explain it, to unpack it and make it accessible to everyone who's interested in actually supporting children and children and families in, in communities. To my mind, um, to our experience as an organization and to what the UN guidelines on alternative care kind of tell us, the institutionalization is the process of replacing the use of institutional care with a system that actually supports children with families, first and foremost, preventing the unnecessary separation. And when necessary, the same system provides children with supports in family-based alternative care. The institutionalization, as I uh, sometimes compare it, is always like baking a cake. It is a process that starts with children in institutions and ends with children in families and communities with a lot of support around them. Um, it is and must be implemented with the best interest of the child in mind. And most importantly, it's very different because each institution caters for different children. They come from different backgrounds. They have the different circumstances. They have different needs and abilities. So the institutionalization is almost like a map, a roadmap that helps us understand how best we can manage this process. Um, the institutionalization is by no means closing institutions. 
that is a byproduct of the process. It's closing the residential aspect of the institution, but in many times, in most of the cases, is a transformative process. It is the process that enables us to change one way of operating and responding to, to a crisis by using residential care in large-scale institutions to refining our approach and being able to support children in a timely fashion as uh, necessary, either by supporting them with families or creating alternatives for for them in families. Um, it is it is quite um, quite a process, and it requires you know technical knowledge, uh, but it is accessible to anyone who's interested in in implementing it. Um, so, uh, did I respond adequately to the question of what is the institutionalization? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that that you know we can obviously leapfrog off of that a little bit, and we will. Um, but if you could just touch on really what are some of the you know a lot of people listening probably have heard the reasons why orphanages are you know aren't the best yep. place for childrens. But can you can you uh, speak to that? Absolutely. Well, I think there are probably four different layers to answering this question. What we know, and we know it from years and years ago, is that institutional care is really not beneficial for children. And what the science tells us is that it is quite toxic, for, especially for young children. Nevertheless, older children and children with disability are very much at risk by being placed in such services. And no matter how hard we try to improve that element, the, the neuroscience tells us that children in that particular environment, because they cannot receive that one-to-one -one attention, that love and care, stimulation that children need to receive in order to grow to their full potential, they will always lead to children experiencing delay in their development, emotional, cognitive, uh, quite severe behavioral issues or emotional consequences. So we know, and the science tells us, that institutional care has a detrimental impact on children's development. What else do we know? We know that most of the children in orphanages are not orphans. So we know that this system creates a sort of a pool effect where children are being placed in institutions because of reasons that have nothing to do with the parents' willingness or love that they have to care for their children. I'll give you a simple example. And I, I just came back from a, from a visit to Zambia where 68% of the children placed in institutions are placed by their parents in order to access education. So my question is, do we need institutions? Do we need to set up orphanages? Or do we need to think of solutions to enable those families to send not one child, but all their children to uh, school and, and create those, those um, channels and investments so that children can, can access education? What else do we know about institutional care? So we know it has... Um, an impact on children's development. We know that it, in institutional care, the prevalence, the incidence of abuse, neglect, including sexual abuse and, and sexual violence is much higher than in a general population. And there are plenty of studies available um, to document this. And most of the information actually comes from children who have been asked 
to, to share their experiences in, in such environments. We know that institutions actually try to respond to a situation providing one type of solution um, to a multitude of needs and circumstances. It's, it's a bit of a one solution fits all, and that's why institutions kind of fail to, to deliver for children. We also know that investing in institutional care, it's not the best investment. We are not getting the highest impact for the best outcome for children. And I will explain why. Just think about this one-way highway. We have families who experience risks and vulnerabilities. And your listeners will probably recognize, and you know what, this is across the world, single parent families, families where parents experience mental health or health issues, uh, families who have more than the typical number of children in a family, family who are very poor, marginalized, isolated in their communities. So these families are all experiencing a number of risk factors. Now, in a system that relies on orphanage care or institutional care, there is no support provided to the families. And what happens is one little change in the circumstances of these families lead to a crisis. And then the orphanages will come in as a solution. Either we separate the child from the family because the crisis really has an impact on the well-being of the child, or children run away from home because they can't cope with not having something to eat, not being able to, to do certain, certain things. So we then commit children to institutional care. And we know from statistics that children will be in once entering institutional care, they're very likely to spend their entire childhood there. Mm. So that's quite a significant investment. You know, per month, we spend 500 to $1,000 per child supporting that child through a system that no, we know it does not deliver huge outcomes for children. Now, just think about the power of those, you know, 500 to 1,000 pounds per month mm. being spent for and with the family, supporting the entire family to become stronger and therefore not only having an impact on one child, but really building a future uh, for that family and for the children who might come along in that family. And therefore, our investment is, is so much more productive. Um, to sum up, institutions do have a negative impact on, on children. They do have a negative impact on families because they force them to make decisions to separate from their children. And they do have a, an impact on societies as, as a whole. Um, they do represent a, a really poor investment of our very limited resources. Mm. Yeah, no, and, and it's, that's such a great summary. Thank you so much for those, for those wise words. Um, but I got. I want to ask, you know, real quick, uh, based on your experiences, research, are there ever instances where orphanages are necessary? Uh, what I would say is that the evidence tells us that we need different solutions for us to be able to support children in the most suitable way. Now, um, I know in some of our previous discussions, we spoke a little bit about the principles that underpin the UN guidelines on alternative care. And there are two very simple principles that one, if one practitioner applies in the day-to-day, -day, 
uh, we are more likely to be better supporting children. One is the principle of necessity. Uh, is it necessary to separate a child from a family? Um, and the other one is the principle of suitability. And that principle tells us that if the separation is necessary, what we need is to have in place suitable services to respond to the specific needs and circumstances of that child at that point in time. And not only that, but to review that service as we go along to ensure that we always match the needs and circumstances of a child until and with a focus to see that child or young person moving into back into families or independent living in the community. And this is where um, the principle of suitability actually pushes us to think through a range of alternatives that we need for children. We can't solve the problem just with reintegration. We can't solve or respond to the children's needs and circumstances only with kinship care, only with foster care. So we need to have a range. And this is where, and that will, I will uh, be very specific here, residential care is a, a, a necessary service that we need to have available for certain children to respond to certain needs and circumstances. To my experience, and I have, I've been working in this field for 17 years, and all the literature that I read clarified to me that institutions, orphanages, large residential care facilities governed by routines and by non-individualized support are not required. They are not necessarily. And we can actually put them to, into history books. That's, that's my dream. But... We need to always pursue excellence in what we do. And, and that means that we need to develop all the services that children might need. I've seen um, small, I, I manage small group homes in my first ever job. And I saw the beneficial impact on children. I saw how I enabled those children who were deeply traumatized by their experiences in institutional care moving and receiving support in that service and being able then to move out of that service into communities, into foster care, or some of them continuing to, to live in, in, in supported uh, residential care because of their um, more complex needs and circumstances. Mm -hmm. So to, to wrap it up in a, in a very short kind of summary way, to my mind, to the evidence that I, I read and I'm aware of, Institutional care is not necessary. Residential care, it is part of our ability to supporting children alongside foster care, kinship care, any other forms of family-based care. Well, that was just a fantastic, you know, as I was preparing this episode and listening back, you know, uh, I first heard that episode with Delia when I was um, when I was just a practitioner in Tanzania and just learning so much from her. It was fun for me now, several years later, to go back and to listen and be like, wow, it is just so on point, so succinct. 
Uh, kids belong in families. Uh, there's really no two ways about it. And there's a lot of orphanages that have been set up, children's homes that are just awesome people that want to do good work and want to get kids back into family now that they're learning better. We want to do better. And uh, I just appreciate the way that Delia really kind of succinctly says that. And, you know, as she even referred to the UN guidelines on alternative care, there's the suitability principle, the necessity principle. There's actually a great course if you haven't checked it out. It's on a platform called Future Learn, um, which is called Implementing the Guidelines on Alternative Care for Children. I think that's the title of it. I took it a number of years ago, but it is a fantastic resource that really kind of gets into that international piece. I would encourage you guys to go check it out. I guess that's my uh, recommendation for the day since we haven't been doing recommendations the last couple episodes. Um, but it is a great resource. And this is the international standard, right? We were talking about the UN General Assembly resolution from 2019. The, uh, the guidelines were released several years ago. Obviously, the UNCRC itself, uh, UN Conventions on the Right of the Child, uh, is over 30 years old now, right? 30, 40, so it's getting up there. So uh, this information on the international scale has been out there for a while, and we want to do right by kids. Uh, each of that does take a cultural and a social context uh, within a given country or within a given region. And uh, that's what I want to do uh, look at right now. You know, if we were to talk about what does this look like in India versus what does this look like in Thailand? What does it look like in Paraguay? What does it look like in, you know, whatever the given country is? And we're even doing care reform in the U.S., which is where I'm recording from. Um, you know, there's different ways that this kind of looks. Um, so I wanted to do a, a little snippet here from uh, my colleague, Jonathan Dow, who actually is also with One Million Home uh, and is the executive director at Ways of Care Solutions, which is our entity based in Kenya. And uh, he really provides us with a good kind of uh, country systems kind of view. And if you guys are familiar with what's going on in Kenya right now, you know, it, it's kind of like there's some stars aligning and we want to make sure that we do this right so that kids are protected and that kids have the opportunity uh, to realize growing up in a family. Um, so Jonathan uh, came onto the show in episode 182 and was just kind of talking with us about country, you know, systems-wide reform, how to engage with um, different actors that have different roles uh, that are all impacting this greater child protection system. So I uh, love to uh, get into this content here with uh, Jonathan Dowell from Ways of Care Solutions. One of the things you just talked about uh, implied something that I want to just just hit on right now, which is the importance of working with different agencies at various levels, different agencies, different organizations, um, people at different levels of the of the system of of our society to really affect change. Can you talk about that? You know, from you know, and then also as you're as you're um, going through that to focus in a little bit more on to what you what you alluded to, which was the importance of the bottom up grassroots approach that, um, you know, I personally think is critical. And I know you do, too, to what, you know, we're talking about in this affecting systems, um, you know, care reform. Yeah, so um, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing that that the system of care in Kenya behaves a lot like, you know, an ecosystem in nature and 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 works like other social systems in society, whether it's politics or, or economics or other things like that. And, and 
So I, I think one of the things we have to recognize from ourselves, you know, first of all, is that we don't, we're not the only agent of change um, and that we can't do things alone, that, that, that system level change um, it has to come from a lot of different organizations and a lot of different people pulling on different leverage points in the system in different ways. Um, and so, you know, the competition that comes up, well, you're not doing it my way, so you're doing it wrong. Well, the reality is, you know, the system won't change until we get a lot of different people doing it different ways. And when we recognize that diversity and we allow it to happen, then we'll actually start to see the system organically, um, you know, um, emerge and change and grow in ways that, that we maybe couldn't have predicted. Um, a system really doesn't change when you change the leader. You know, if you just change the president, it doesn't change everything, right? It, the system itself needs multiple leverage points at different places within the, the layers um, of the system. And uh, I think in a lot of ways, what, what I'm really excited about in Kenya is that um, there are already a lot of people pulling levers, you know, and there, there are a lot of countries out there where there is nobody pulling levers and, and children are, are not getting that kind of attention. The system is not getting... Uh, that kind of attention. And in Kenya, there's a lot of attention. Um, and I think that's because it's a little bit of a linchpin country in, in East Africa and, and in the world. But um, we really benefit from the, the investment and work that others have done. You know, and we we honestly don't have enough money to work at it from a top-down perspective here at Waza. You know, we we're not, we're not, we we're at the bottom, so we start at the bottom. And that's that's our approach. Um, but we can only be successful if there are people doing it from the top down too. I think that's one of the really interesting things and maybe the, the humility of this is that I, we just can't do it alone. And, and if I can play one piece of the puzzle, if I can pull on one lever and, and, and that lever contributes to uh, better care for kids, um, better and stronger families and the reunification of, of children that are separated from their families today, then, then I think we've done our job. Um, I'd love to pull that last lever and get all the credit, right? <laughs> we all do, right? But, but really the reality is the more that we struggle for power and influence and money and all these other things, the more that the system will fight against us. Uh, and I think that's through the, the, we go out into the organizations that don't have support. We go to the organizations that don't have um, help. Um, we go to those organizations that don't have international donors and really help them um, going to the places at the bottom um, that don't get a lot of light. And by supporting them, um, we're reaching, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of children um, through um, those lowly, you know, organizations that are not so exciting or fun, you know, we're not sitting at the table with the big boys, but we're wandering around in the field with the little guys trying to help them to make a difference in the way that they do their work. Um, and I think that's, that's a place where not a lot of people are. And so yeah. I'm, I'm happy to pull that lever. And I'm thankful for those who are in the other parts of the system pulling those levers as well. Yeah, so am I. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that we've kind of been circling around is this idea around systems. And, and this is, I don't think it's just in vogue. I'm a big believer in systems theory myself. And, and I know that it's been um, talked about uh, uh, amongst you know, this conversation, right? Global child welfare global care reform, whatever we want to call this conversation. So, um, and that's something that you and I have talked about, Jonathan. It's something that our, our friend Ian uh, was talking about uh, in our last podcast and shared a great resource. But when we talk about systems change, one of the models that you've used um, to help understand where care reform is at or 
whatever we want to call this conversation is at in Kenya, um, is this two loops model. Um, now this is a, this is a systems model that has been used in other spaces as well, but it's something that you you're also using to kind of frame the work that, uh, ways care solutions is doing there. So can you just explain the two loops model a little bit to our audience and then specifically even how it applies in your context of working in child welfare in Kenya? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you. Um, systems, systems play such an important role in, in how all of nature works, you know, and, and that includes social systems and includes, you know, the system of care and protection in Kenya with, with the people we work with. Um, I, when I discovered the two loops models, there, there's a lot of different models that try to explain systems theory and, and not just one of them is right, but this one hit me in particular because it, it just seemed to click so well with the concept of, of, of where we're at and, and the changing of um, institutional care to, to family-based care. And the two loops model is like, um, it, it has two loops. One of them, the first one represents an, the old system. That's the dominant system. That's the, the, the majority system and it's on its way out. So it's kind of lived its life cycle and that system is kind of coming to an end. Um, and while that system is coming to an end, another system is starting to emerge. Um, and that, that the, the second loop is really the new system. Um, so in Kenya, you could you look at the government's um, you know kind of deregulation and delicensing of orphanages, and um, you can you can look at that as kind of them helping to retire the old system, right? Um, and then there are other organizations who are out there like trying out new models and and innovating new solutions, new ways to to care for children and families, um, and that kind of represents the new system. Um, and what I really loved about this is that one is it, it the problem with all of this is that the gap between the two systems is where all the danger is. That's where all of the child protection issues are really going to be you know, happening en masse. Um, and, and, you, and you got the, the danger spot, the gap between the two systems. And then you got the, those who, who really will only try to stay on the first loop. They kind of ignore the next loop coming. Um, they fight, they defend, they ignore, you know, they hide. Um, and they kind of don't want to recognize the new system coming. Um, and then there are those who are on the second loop who are, you know, they, they think that the second loop is the only way to do it, right? It's the best way to do it. It's the only way to do it. And they actually, you know, shame the people on the old loop. Um, and, they, and, they, and they actually act as if the old loop is, is evil or bad or, or, or somehow needs to be destroyed. Um, and, and so you find people, they don't want to sit in the gap. I mean, even the system itself wants to collapse the gap because it's an uncomfortable place to be. So what we try to do is we kind of found our place there. Like, okay, we're going to mine the gap. Like we're going to sit in between the two systems of care um, and we're going to honor the old system. You know, and we say it a lot with our partners, like, thank you. Like you spent 20 years running this orphanage and caring for these children. Like, wow. Uh, many of them following the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, right? And being obedient to sacrifice their lives and, and to do this work or their money to do this work. And we want to honor that. You know, we really want to um, thank people for that. And, and when we do so, I think I, I've seen people's li eyes light up, you know, they're, they're tired of being shamed. They're tired of being broken. And, and, and so when someone honors them for that, um, you know, they, they really appreciate it. And it really unlocks a lot of healing as well in this, in this brokenness and in, in this transition. Um, but while at the same time we honor the old system, we, we promote the new, the new system. Um, you know, we talk about it, we study it from an academic perspective. We look at the numbers. Um, we, we, we study the new system to make sure that as it emerges, that it's proved, providing the right kind of outcomes. Um, and we promote those things that we find that work and we try to scale them up. Um, so if we find a model that works, man, we want to we wanna promote it and tell people about it and help them. Um, and really building a graceful path 
of transition from the old to the new. Um, with the humility to know that my kids or my grandkids or whoever will come afterwards to, you know, retire my system, you know, uh, and that, that we're not creating the perfect system, but we're really, we're just mining the gap. Um, is if the gap closes too fast, then children get reunited without preparation and planning and systems of care in place and kids get hurt. Um, and if it doesn't ever close, you know, if it gets extended too long, then, then also kids are, kids are getting hurt. It's dangerous to be in the gap. And, and so we, we try to sit in the gap. We try to mind the gap and to help, um, you know, or organizations make that transition and encourage those who have, you know, with the support to help them to really mature that model. Like it, it's one thing to change uh, and do something new, but it's another thing entirely to do it well. And that, that's really where we also like to, um, you know, work with is maturing organizations to help their outputs and their, their efficiencies and effectiveness to increase as they mature and grow. So that was Jonathan Dell with Waza Care Solutions operating in Kenya. You know, they have such a interesting way about kind of how they operate. And, and the way that Waza has been set up is really to recognize that there are organizations, there are orphanages, and there are um, political uh, movements, you know, within Kenya that is actually pushing, you know, the care sector towards family. And it's not just in Kenya where we're seeing this. Now, Kenya is definitely a hotspot right now, but there are these movements within a number of different countries, and some organizations are actually positioning themselves to kind of shepherd and guide that along. At One Million Home, that's largely what we've done, is actually kind of set up our methodology to help organizations transition. And that looks like exactly what Jonathan was describing uh, in Kenya. Um, it also looks like engaging through partnership in other areas. So... Um, you know, that includes working with um, a, helping children worldwide in Sierra Leone, uh, working alongside Akisa Ministries in Uganda, and uh, also working in Haiti um, in partnership with Child Hope International. And I apologize, this is not a this is not at all a one million home promotional uh, ad. What I'm saying, though, is that when we talk about transitioning to family care, what we're recognizing is that people don't necessarily know how to do it on their own. Right. You have. These um, people that love kids, they want the best for kids, they've been running this children's home, and uh, largely they've been set up to provide residential type of services, and uh, that's, you know, great. They have caretakers, they have, you know, those people that are caring for those kids in those homes, um, but when we start to talk about, you know, well, what does it look like to do a child assessment, a family assessment, trace family, uh, transfer the types of services that you're providing that are not uh, any longer providing residential services, but now community-based services. This is pretty complex work. And the average, you know, children's home doesn't necessarily just know how to do that right off the bat. So it helps to have a guide. So, you know, what Jonathan has been doing in Kenya and now also what our next uh, guest is doing in Haiti is actually providing that contextualized support for those orphanages that are coming alongside. So, uh, yeah, we're going to hear now from Spencer Reeves, and what we're looking at here is really the organizational level. So he recorded with uh, Phil and Rick um, a couple years ago, two or three years ago, about their own transition, right? They, they were a children's home, and, and uh, they decided to transition to family care, and that was a process, right? And they had to get their board uh, going. They had to get their donors going. Uh, they had to... Um, 
you know, pull a lot of, you know, to use Jonathan's term, they have to pull a lot of levers just within their own organization to kind of make that transition happen. But my friends, it is possible, including in an area like Haiti that it has a lot of poverty, has a lot of internal conflict, uh, unstable government. It is possible to transition to family care. And that's what uh, Spencer shares uh, in this episode, um, which was episode 155 of the Think Orphan podcast. And that's what Spencer and his team, as well as others uh, in this space, uh, are starting to share about. You know, this was our experience. This is what it looked like for us to transition. So I'm excited for you guys to hear now uh, from Spencer Reeves of Child Hope International about how his organization transitioned to family care. In your first year in missions, when you move overseas, you 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 get put right next to the fire and you get pur- purged and pruned. And we went through that in a big way. And, and a lot of it, you know, some was relational, some was, I don't understand the orphan parent connection. One of the big stories for me was leaving work one day as hosting a team and uh was leaving after hours and I saw a kid up on the wall mm-hmm. talking to a woman who was selling mangoes on the street. And he called me over. He said, Spencer, come here, come here. I want to introduce you to my mom. Mm-hmm. And I was, and it just, it froze me. And it just like, why is this have to happen like this? And I didn't know you had a mom. And, and it really just showed there was way more that I needed to understand both culturally in the, in the poverty and, that kind of led us into a stirring. We didn't know what it was, but we ended up stepping away from child hope itself, you know, kind of blessing and, and moving to the side to, to, to really ask hard questions, learn language. I did some other ministry with the local church, but I wanted to, I wanted to know more. I wanted to understand this crisis that was unfolding. Mm-hmm. And in 2016, we were invited back to the ministry. The beloved founders transitioned back to the States and some friends had covered for a gap year and, and they thought they might be there longer, but they, they were transitioning too. And they invited us back in and, and it really gave us an opportunity to take the knowledge we had and, and to say, this is how we may try to do this. If, if we step into this role <laughs> and, you know, by God's grace, the, the things had come together and, and the board was in a place and the org was in a place to, to receive that. And it was, it was kind of a condition as we stepped into it, but it was, we wanted to run a case model. We wanted to see if these kids had families and see if God was already working in their families to, to restore and, and do that. So we began a, a family tracing project. We, we began to learn a lot, knowledge share. We partnered with anybody doing family-based care that we could think of. CAFO was a big resource for us. We were really green in that. We invited people to come and speak at our board meetings. Ellie Oswald came over the mountains. We met in Ellensburg and just, she just shared what, you know, faith to action stuff, the transitioning to family-based care toolkit. That was, that was our (laughs) Bible that, you know, like, how do we do this? What are we going to do? And God just provided everything we needed at the right time, both, both structurally and and he's continuing to do that. And so we began, we hired social worker, one social worker, and he just started finding family, family tracing Mm. 
And then we, we went from there and just started inviting family back to the table. But we had a, we had a legacy model that really needed to be addressed with our donors. Mm. And that was, that was a, a really big step and one that we had, we were encouraged not to take it lightly, you know, try to over communicate as much as possible about the directional changes, the reasoning why we're making changes, why we're going in this direction. And so that's still going to this day. It's been four years and we're still at times connecting with donors that just say, you know, I'm, I don't know if I understand this. Why, why are you doing this? And, but a majority of the support just blessed it and said, wow, that's wow. Great. There's family. Great. You know? So what about like, obviously there are, I mean, you've got all kinds of constituency groups that are a part of that, you know, your, your own staff, your own team, the people in the community around you, your board, others, like, could you, could you kind of go maybe a little, a little deeper into how, you know, kind of how you expanded the vision and, and, and sort of what was the, what was the rhythm of the way that you brought all of those groups along in order to help them mm-hmm. to, to buy into this unified vision to move toward family-based care? Yeah, I think, I guess we'll start with staff. With staff, we really needed to come in with a new mission and vision. And that was, had already been in the works. So we just kind of solidified that. And my first week, I just shared, this is the vision and mission that we're doing now, that we're going in. And But I also really didn't come out and say, hey, we're, we're going to reunify all the kids to their families. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really gave the staff time to process what is family-based care. And I expressed, we're going to start searching for families and invite them to be a part of the kid's life. And uh, so I, I would kind of categorize it as soft, a soft sell into it. There was some objection up front and about the poverty, about, you know, them not being able or capable and, or maybe it wasn't the best idea from some staff that, but, when I bring it back to the personal level of family and my staff's children, (laughs) you know, and, and why do you, where does your child sleep at night? Why do you bring them in close? Why do you care and comfort and feed and protect? And, and these, these things that children need to develop, you know, the, the staff understood it. They knew it was the right, right thing to, if possible, (laughs) they had a lot of doubt, like, I don't know if you're going to be able to, but I understand that. And that's, I think that's tribute to, to, you know, the leaders before me in the organization and the, the, the ministry development in the hearts of the staff. And so, yeah. Well, so kind of four years in how, like talk a little bit about the progress you've made and, and like where, where you sit today versus, you know, versus where you were with, you know, kind of with a dream and an idea that you were trying to, yeah. you know, trying to bring people along to. Yeah. Well, it's been like um, kind of blind, blindfold, you know, just feeling our way through <laughs> scenarios. It's like, Oh, so-and-so's family. Great. Let's see where this goes. You know, Oh, we got this, you know, nothing was guaranteed. I want to just preface too. We went through in my first year, we went through a massive audit. <laughs> by the government that nearly closed our doors and God miraculously mm. provided in that moment. But that put a lot of work on hold financially. And then 
since then we've had crisis after crisis mm. between sickness, chikungunya, Zika, you know, political unrest, protest for about three years now. And a lot of shelter in place scenarios, we evacuated twice during that time. We had a lot of disruption, but my biggest concern was doing it well and, and taking the time to make decisions. I didn't, I didn't want to rush anything. I knew the poverty was very, very real. And even in the process of our family reunification, we'd find family members. And I think we lost almost five family, family members in the period of time of mm-hmm. bringing them back to the table. And it's not, it was mostly poverty related, some violence, some just sickness lack of help. We didn't know scenarios were unfolding, accidents, vehicle accidents, just, just hard things. And those, those were difficult because you brought a child into that relationship and now they're processing, you know, a pain in that. But overall, I, I, I just really wanted to build the process. We've, re- we've reached out to a lot of our partners and we continue to try to grow and learn we ask a lot of questions and we're, I'm taking state social workers, you know, that, that are, that are graduated from the university in Haiti and we're representing this approach. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a lot of dialogue, a lot of time spent with them getting the mission vision and, and learning as we go on how to, how to work with the families and, and so that, you know, best support them. You know, I, I think landing that with our friend Spencer uh, hopefully puts a little bit inside of you that actually this is possible, right? We talked about the big head knowledge. Uh, you know, we talked about the international standards and you can see those things and you can hear an absolute genius like Delia and think that's not attainable, right? Or you can hear, you know, somebody like Jonathan who's working at the country level and saying, how do we, what is this systems? What, how, what? But to really kind of land even on somebody like Spencer, you know, who was just running, you know, a small to medium sized nonprofit, you know, operating as a children's home. But to make that transition and look, he recorded that two or three years ago uh, with Think Orphan. And at as it is now, they've transitioned. Right. Uh, they got most of those kids reunified back with family. Uh, they did, you know, some foster care towards the end. But those kids are in family. And, and that's that's worth celebrating and that's what it's about. And does that mean that now the work is done because we got the kids in the family? Absolutely not. They got to follow up, right? They got to continue to manage those cases, right? And and they want to reach more kids within their community. And, and hopefully that's what this is all about for all of us. And I just love the way that Spencer, you know, summed it up right there at the end. And I think it's a good final point for this episode, which is to grow and learn. And that's what we're doing here at Think Orphan. We want to continue to grow. We want to continue to learn. And it's a pleasure and an honor to do that alongside each of every one of you. So please uh, reach out to us. Again, you can email directly, brandon at onemillionhome.com. You can connect with us on the thinkorphan.com website. You can connect with us on uh, onemillionhome.com front slash journey home. If you want to start learning how you can transition uh, to family care, there's ways that you can connect with this 
podcast with this community and get kids back into family. So uh, we hope that you are taking everything that you're hearing here on the Think Orphan podcast and that you use it to better love orphans and vulnerable children each and every day. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.